0: It was a macabre waltz. It was a horror story. The dance that this girl did in front of these people. I, I don't know. I've heard pastors talk about how it was all but a pole dance. And then again, in the ancient world, be very common for the ladies who don't hang out with the men, because you don't hang out with the men, to come in and be pretty for a few moments. And maybe a young girl or five, would kind of dance with the tambourine and something. and Not necessarily a problem for us Christians. The problem is the hearts of the people at the party. And the people at the party are great examples of what it looks like when love grows cold. Language St. Paul tells us that we should expect in the latter days of this planet are we in the latter days of this planet? Absolutely. When Jesus ascended, the latter day reign of the New Testament began. Are we in the final latter days of this planet? The really, really, really latter days of this planet? I don't know. Maybe. Let's wait. Not yet. Soon. Right? Soon. Are we at the latter days of the American dollar? Well, that's fun to we'll talk about. i love to chew your ear off about it sometime. Hard times we live in, lots of news. My biggest concern of all of it, though, is that already love grows cold among many. And I can only foresee, no matter what else changes in this American life over the next generation, 30 plus years, is that the children who are growing up right now, they're not going to be more loving. They're not going to be more comforting. They're not going to be more stable. And the people who are screaming and pulling their hair out right now teaching them. Where are they teaching them? Did I just condemn the teachers or the TV? You'll have to figure that out yourself, I suppose. Love growing cold is the scary problem. What do you do when your neighbors are like the Herodias's, right? When they're that kind of person? Imagine that your neighbor actually, because you said divorce is wrong, wants to kill you. If she could, she would. And the only thing stopping her is, well, the laws, the policemen, all that. I don't think we're going to defund the police here. But if love grows cold, again, what happens? So let's rejoice that we're not quite at a point wherein we are seeing the daughter's of our famed rulers trotting out the heads of people as a joyous birthday present. We're not there. Then again, the daughters and sons of the generation of the elite who lead us certainly are advocates for abortion. Almost across the board. I think back to my vote for Bush too. How he convicted me to vote for him by saying he'd let Jesus into his heart. And I thought, for that reason, he'll be pro-life and we'll get some pro-life something done. But I learned something. What I learned is that pro-life politicians in America get into office and wait till the next term to get elected. And pro-abortion politicians get into office and change everything as fast as they can. So I just don't trust any of that anymore to deal with the real problem, again, of love growing cold, which is the making of humans who conceive who could conceive of living an extra decade by murdering the babies of their grandchildren to make serums of living juice. I watched The Dark Crystal when I was young and it scared the bejeebies out of me. But what were the evil bird creatures doing? They were capturing little tiny puppet people who had big cute eyes and they were putting them in front of a crystal that sucked their life out and then they drank it. Live a little longer. And I thought, God, I don't want to ever see that again. I probably watched it five, six times. Uh, I was a boy. Boys don't think. Boys just do. But now it's like, wait a minute. I thought everyone who watched that movie or anything like it would just know that the most important thing you have is your children. And your children's children. And the last thing you would ever want to do is experiment on their remains as some form of cannibalistic spiritual life. So again, forgive me if I look at the big picture and I'm like, you know, I just, I just, I don't think America has God's blessing anymore. I do believe every Christian in America has God's blessing. I do believe every Christian church in America has God's blessing. And I believe we have been poked in the eyeball with the love of our neighbors grown cold in order to encourage us to remember where we are and lift up our voices. To give more exceeding witness, not to be quieted more, lest they be offended, but to go on the offense with the scandal of the cross and say, I am fearless in this age, And no matter what they do to us, you can't make us stop believing Christ is sufficient. Now, to bring it home hard for a moment. This week, this week alone, the most common question I have received from members of this congregation. Not every week I get the same question from multiple people. But this week I did. Pastor, my employer is mandating... I get gene therapy. They call it a vaccine. It's gene therapy. The employer is mandating, I get gene therapy. Can I say I don't want it because I'm a Christian? Now, you know how Christianity works in America, right? This is my Bible. I can do what it says I can do. I am what it says I am. Amen. Let's not look at it. We'll talk about what we want. But see, you can walk into that office wherever of whoever and say, I'm a Christian. And his Bible says, I can't take that thing. What is that thing? Green eggs and ham. I can't take the green eggs and ham because the Bible says, oh my goodness, Lord have mercy. They're not going to make you do it. You have that freedom of religion in this country. You don't need me. You don't need the Rutherford Institute and its forms, which you can look them up, they're very good. All you need is the conviction to remember what country you were born in and what its laws say. And if other people say those laws don't count, who cares? The laws say you have a freedom to worship as you please. And if you become convicted because you look at the information, you find out every single one of these things is tied to an abortifacient industry, a complex, an industrial money-making machine built on both divorcing families, aborting black babies, and stealing as much of the stuff on the black market as they can to turn it into medicine. If you want to say, I just I just don't want to be in that team, you are free. You are free to not walk that road. And again, the country guarantees you that, and your Christianity guarantees you that even more. Now, I'll tell you this my intention is not politics. My intention is only your faith. But as I watch your faith getting challenged by politics, and I ask the question you know, should pastors speak on these things? The thing that keeps coming back to me is that the devil keeps talking about my religion as if it's politics. That ain't cool. That ain't cool. And that's not cool for you. Because then you go out there and you think it's just politics, but what's happening is they're silencing your heart. They're taking away your ability to believe what you believe. You know it doesn't feel like normal. You keep wanting normal to come back. Who's in charge of that? You are. To decide that today is normal. It's always been like this. And the greatest lie the devil ever pulled was convincing us he wasn't behind all this stuff. So start to look at it that way. You want the golden key here? You want the golden key. Take a step back from your life for one week. Every time you see somebody on a phone, an iPad, or in front of a TV, look at everything else around them. And then imagine that it's a statue of a cow they're looking at. And ask me, What's going on? Tell me what's going on. As they're ignoring their children. As they're setting up altars to just lie in front of The point is not you can't watch. Look, I got one right here. That's not the point. The point is to realize if you're not a Christian thinking with the Bible right now and you are doing this stuff, it's eating your brain. With a lie about who you are. You want normal instead. I don't blame you at all. And again, that means then seeing you live at a time where people's hearts are increasingly like Herod, Herodias, uh, and the daughter. Who notice, I'm not going to go too deep on this one here, but notice, mom, what should I do? She has no idea. Oh, get his head. Okay. She could have gone, dad, I need his head. Mom wants it. Kind of gross. I know. It's your party. Uh, No, 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 no. (laughs) On a platter, she says. That's all her little heart. On a platter. When people replace love with hate, you can't trust your neighbors. Love has grown cold. I want to talk about Revelation. Because it's so much more exciting than everything I just said. It's more fun. I, I'm, I'm really tired of the news myself. What I love, what I love is when we open the Bible and the Bible story becomes Bigger than everything else I just said. There was a really cool moment this week where myself and two other guys happened to get together to deal with a number of issues in life, both members. And I didn't plan it, but one of them opened a Bible and said, Well, there's this verse, and I like it. And this and that. For the next 15 to 20 minutes, we were in the most engaging brotherhood conversation I've been in in a long, long time. It was unbelievably opening and uplifting to us. How did that happen? Someone who's not me, the pastor, had read the Bible, and then with me there said, what about this verse? Isn't that cool? And next thing you know, we had a Bible study for 15 minutes, and it wasn't a Bible study. It was iron sharpening iron. It was brothers living in faith together. The way that's going to happen is the next kind of preaching I'm going to do, when we look at the text closely enough that you can really remember and understand the pieces. So we're going to take this Revelation text in two parts. First, we're going to look at it verse by verse, just the two verses we have, three verses we have in the bulletin. Then I'm going to back up and I'm going to give you that big chapter six picture, sort of as our slam dunk punch for the end of the show and all that. Yeah. Okay. So zoom in in your bulletin, though, right now. We're using the ESV text that's in the bulletin. And this is just the fifth seal. I'll explain the seals when I talk about the big picture. So we're going to ignore the seals for a moment. And let's just see what happens in this fifth seal. So St. John, the eye there, the apostle, the last living one that's been caught up in this vision and told to write it for the sake of seven churches that represent all the churches, he sees under the altar. Now, you know, we have an altar here. Our altar is built to be a reflection of or like unto the Old Testament altar, but different in that we don't sacrifice stuff on it. So The altar that John would be speaking about wouldn't have a base like ours does. And the top of it would be more like your grill. It would be a grating. and You would have a fire built underneath the altar. And then you'd go and you'd put these big chunks of flesh on the altar and it would just burn up. That's how altars worked. And now, of course, the sacrifice completed in Christ, we don't need to have Christ baptized in fire again. He's done that bit already, and he comes to us in his body and blood, bread and wine. So our altars are more for receiving than for giving, if that makes sense. But nonetheless, you can picture here that fire underneath in the throne room of God, where John is seeing a lot of this happening. And under that altar are, it says, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, this is the text that's supposed to get us to John the Baptist and his martyrdom at this terrible event that took place. And also to ask the question, does God let bad things happen to Christians? And to have to answer the question, yes, he does. And to see this text is something of our answer. Let's keep going on that. But these, these souls then, remember this bit of common theology. Right now, you are a body that has a spirit. Or you are a spirit That is a body. I like that one a little bit better. And that death is the end of you when God takes the spirit back. But now he's made it so that his taking the spirit back is not the end of you. But instead he's taking it up to rest with him in what he has prepared in Jesus. Now don't confuse that heaven with the last day resurrection. All right? So these souls are bodiless Christians waiting for the resurrection with us. They're still experiencing time somehow. Uh, I don't know how. But what they're doing while they experience this time waiting for the last day is they pray. They pray. Now, we'll come back to that. Notice the language about them being slain. The Greek word there is it's not just killed. It's like bloody murder kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's slaughter is kind of the word. Why are they slaughtered? Because of two things, the word of God, the witness they had borne. Now, I think this is definitely meant to call attention to those Christians of the past who indeed were martyred, the way we talk about it, right? Justin Martyr is named such because he was killed for his faith directly. Or Stephen in the book of Acts as the first martyr of the Bible. He witnesses Jesus has risen, and he's killed for just that. So clearly this text includes them as a picture. But I want to suggest to you that in the bigger picture of this chapter, this text includes you no matter what. I think it's important for you to know that it is God's plan to slaughter you for the word of God and for the witness you bear. That is, he is going to kill you in such a way as to bring your faith out of your mouth more. And this is generally his plan of salvation for you in this life. You're like, why did I become a Christian? <laughs> that sounds painful. It's because this life is a lie. It's the wicked man who he sets up with the perfect enemy. He has everything he needs. He sees no problems in his life except a bunch of other people, and then he dies with no repentance. That's that's what he does for the wicked. He brings them down in a moment. For you instead, he shows you that you live in the valley. He presses you down into the pain and he pushes you forward so that you keep looking up from those thorns to see that he is the shepherd leading you all the way. In this then, please see that everyone who dies in the faith is killed by God because he's the author of death and that because of the word of God that's within them, and the confession of faith, the witness that they bear as Christians, this means that all Christians indeed, when they die, rest with Jesus under the altar, whatever that means. And they're going to be engaged in prayer, as I said. That's verse 10. They cried with a loud voice. Now, that word cried, like the word slain, is, is kind of polite for the language. Shriek is maybe better. Screamed, you know, but these are men and women shrieking under the altar. What do they shriek? O sovereign Lord, almighty God, right? They're calling out to God. Holy means set apart, right? And true, that means never changes. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, in all the ways I imagined heaven, I didn't imagine it would be me me saying, I can't wait till it's over. But that's what they're saying. But what are they saying they can't wait till it's over? Not resting with Jesus. That's just going to get better when they get their bodies, when we get our bodies. What they can't wait to be over is this planet. Particularly the wicked people running this planet and doing all manner of evil with it. Particularly not the people at all. Particularly the powers and principalities of this present darkness who hide behind the shadows and with their lies and machinations are trying to destroy humanity because they don't get to be saved. And so for them, all they care about is keeping you from it. How long, they ask, do we have to put up with that? Now, for you to pray that today, it's literally to say, how long, Jesus, until either you come back or kill me? Because both would be better than right now. And that's not an easy thing to pray. Or, sir, it wasn't before 2020. It's getting easier a little bit, I think. It'd be better now if he came back, right? Somebody testify? Better. Amen? Yeah, it'd be better now if he came back. Um, It'd be better now if he avenges our blood. See that? The how long is until you, Jesus, avenge our blood. What does that mean? Again, you're a a body soul that's going to get split by death. You deserve it, and yet you don't. You do. You have all penalty for yourself, and yet it wasn't like you came up with it by yourself. Nope. You were led away and astray by something that's not even human. And again, that thing, that being, Satan, Hasatan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, Now It gets a little easier to pray this prayer. How long, Jesus, until you absolutely wipe the floor with the devil? How long until you come back and you make it so he can't lie to me anymore? How long until you make it so that I cannot be deceived or have to distrust or be concerned or have anxiety or come up with any other idol I make up because I can't believe in you in this flesh? How long, Jesus, till you free me from that? Now, you got your own version of that, right? Somebody testify? Oh, I don't know. I'm feeling lonely now. Goodness. Okay, so the prayer, how long? I know you can pray how long. What are they given? So the experience, let me me say it this way. They have an experience of torment in heaven. An experience of affliction. In heaven, what's the affliction? Seeing the torment on the earth. Remembering what was done to them on the earth and seeing how it's being done to their children. Well, and the members of the church, and God says, it's all right. Here, have this white robe. They're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So, how do I understand this? The white robe has absolutely gotta be the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It always is, you know. Your sin was like scarlet, I've made you white as snow. There it is. So they're all reminded that Christ has got this whole thing under control. How long, O oh Lord, until you did I not die for you? Did I not rise? Am I not ascended? Here, you're resting where you are if you'll take the time to breathe and look around. And again, that message is to all of us again here as the church. I said it last week, I'll say it again. The answer is not more of you. The answer is never more of you. They're given a white robe. They're told to rest a little longer, be still and know he is Jesus until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Every time you can't figure out why life is still going on the way that it is. Oh, I can't get it fixed on any level. The answer is that God still wants to save somebody who's not you. He's got you. And he wants the light of his gospel and the knowledge of his resurrection to come to someone who's not you. And so until that number is complete, he lets it go on. And now you know, for my part, 44 years ago, I'm glad he let it keep going. Because I wouldn't have been here otherwise. And as much as I can honestly tell you that there are elements of my internal life in torment that I am so ready for him to come back and take away from me. I want not one more day with this in my heart. But I will still praise him and say, thank you for making me who I am that you might redeem me from. it. That's yours here. As you are under this altar. Feasting upon Christ. Calling out and seeing. You want normal back. Even when it comes back, don't be deceived. It'll never be normal here. Normal is the last day. All right. So that's verse by verse here. If you've got your Bible and can join me on this parade through chapter 6. Um, We'll try to have a little bit of fun at the end. we got plenty of time for it, although I'm warm (laughs) if you're not. So um, summary up to chapter 6. Chapter 1, John's on an island. He's there because he's a Christian pastor, and the Roman government have put him there as a prison. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I would contend to you that means he's reading the Bible and writing down things from the Bible for us to go study. And if you read Revelation carefully, you can quickly see nearly every verse is an Old Testament reference point. It's like a concordance as a book about the Old Testament. And so to be in the spirit as John is, you would then go and study these same stories. These stories come in a pattern or in a unfolding that's a little bit geometric, it's based on numbers. And the main number in the book is seven, because seven from the Old Testament is kind of a main number. It's the number of holiness. It's most connected to Genesis chapter one, in which you have the earth being made in seven days. And the seventh day is set apart. It's made holy as the Sabbath for rest, right? So seven then is that number of holy rest or Sabbath rest or holiness in God. And John will build the whole book around four of these sevens. I used to teach three. So if you watch my old videos, you'll see I say three, but I realized it's kind of obvious, but there's really four. Um, Three would make sense since that's the number of our Lord's Trinity, his, his own identity in eternity. But four makes even more sense because four is the number of the earth. And the main biblical way we get to this is that you have the four corners of the earth. That means the four cardinal directions. North, south, east, and west. So because you can go in any of those directions as this three-dimensional being on a two-dimensional surface, right? um, You have then four becoming this number of the earth, which will lead to a bunch of other stuff like we're gonna look at here in a moment, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's four on purpose. Okay, so there's four sevens in the book of Revelation. Three are letters to congregations in what today is Turkey, back then Asia Minor. That's happened already. After that, there's this moment where you see the throne room of God and you see a lamb looking like he has been slain, but alive on the throne. And you see a, a book that's sealed with, I don't know, glowing golden seals, or however you want to imagine these things that lock the book shut. And nobody seems to be able to open it. And it's so bothersome to John, he begins to weep and cry. I tell you that what he sees is the truth of God closed to man. He sees that none of us can go and find God. And he weeps. We're, we're cut off. But then a voice says, look, the lamb on the throne, he can open those seals. And there's all this singing that happens then. The church is there, and there's a bunch of hallelujahs, and blessed is the lamb. And when we say this is the feast in our liturgy, it's all from that same section. So all that happens. And then the lamb begins to open Those seals, those locks on the book, and there are seven of them. Chapter six is much of this opening. And again, that's what we're going to kind of look at. The seventh seal, the seventh seal shows up in chapter eight. So, over the chapter six and seven, you have six seals that are opened. The seventh one in chapter eight opens the other two sevens. We're almost done with the structure here. So, if the details are too much, hang tight. So in seven, number three, the seals, seventh seal is seven trumpets and an angel with wrath in a bowl of incense and will become seven bowls of incense that are cast down by angels later in the book. So what I would suggest to you is that these four sevens, including the three pictures are four different ways of looking at the same reality each with an emphasis based on different Old Testament texts to highlight something. And it makes great preaching at the end of the day, if you know what's going on. I got a a podcast series on it. I did for a while up through like chapter seven or eight. And there's just, so, I, could, I could never go more than a verse or two because I'd have to go back and look at like seven or eight chapters and stories in the Old Testament just to get the one or two verses to make sense. It's, it's beautiful stuff. So the kind of thing that you and your devotion by all means, might just explore the rest of your life. But then again, okay. So then we're not going to get to the seventh seal because that's going to open another bag of worms. (laughs) It's going to open more angels. (laughs) Um, We're going to try to get through chapter six and the six seals that we see, see there. All right. So you've got your Bible. Chapter six, verse one says this. Now, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, I don't want to miss those four living creatures. They've showed up before. So in that big picture of the throne room of God where everybody's singing, these four cherubim, seraphim, living creatures are flying around God, you know, like sometimes we have our angels here. They have this strange facial feature that has four fronts to it, uh, animal, uh, wild animal, tame animal, bird, and man. And they represent, again, four number of creation. They are all the created life singing to God They now tell John, go look what's happening. And notice the four say, look what happens. And there's going to be four things that happen that are all bad. Now, the first here, we'll get specific with them, but these are the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse. You may have heard them from American movies that know nothing about what they are, but it sure sounds cool, right? It definitely sounds cool. Why are they the four horsemen of the apocalypse? If you listen with American English, you'll think that's because they come at the end of the world. Because the apocalypse is the end of the world. And that's where the movie is really just lied to you. Because the apocalypse is not the end of the world. The apocalypse is the revealing of what God thinks. John received a revelation, same word, the four horsemen of the revelation, about what God thinks. And there are, again, these four horses and guys on them that are going to show up doing something to the four, the whole earth. So why is that story all there? To convince you of this point. These four horsemen of the apocalypse are not about something that's going to happen at the end of the world. They're about the way life has always been on this broken planet. And how various types of suffering just go here and there about the earth. And no one really even knows why but they're rending destruction behind them wherever they go. And this first one, he's the one that's the hardest to explain, this guy on the white horse. There's going to be another white horse later, and he who sits on it is named Faithful and True, and a sword with two edges comes out of his mouth, and he conquers the nations. That's Jesus. Now, there are some who think that because that horse is white and this horse is white, that this is Jesus too. I'm less on that one. Um, There are others who kind of would say, well, it sounds like war, right? Conquering. But see, war is going to show up on a different horse. So the debate is out. Is this the devil himself? Not bad. Is it the pride of mankind? Sure. Is it tyranny? Yeah, it's all of that. But again, of all of these, it's the one I have the least clarity on. The others get a bit easier. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And it was given to him a great sword. So now, I mean, you can see this guy, right? Rider on a red horse, big old sword, and wherever he goes, Imagine how big he is or spiritual glory is falling behind him. Men's love grow cold. And they're willing to slay each other over a piece of bread or some such thing. Now, as we move into the next two horses, um, I want to emphasize, I said, all of this Revelation text will have Old Testament references. If you want to see the horses, they're in Zechariah. They're in Zechariah chapter 1, and I believe it's chapter 4, but it might be chapter 3. And you get all the colors, but then they shift it up a little bit. And they seem to represent all the same things, but then not quite. And that's exactly how John always does it. So there's nothing weird there. It's just he takes what Zechariah was saying, which we can study for their time, and he says it to his time. And again, I'm going to take that whole story here in a moment. Right now we got a white horse of power. we got a red horse of war. Verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Notice it's connected to the whole earth. Come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. Not like fish scales, right? But like a balance for weighing things. He had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So, without going into the narrow details of what a denarius is, that means that for a day's labor, you're barely eating. That's what that means. Okay. So, here he is with his scales, balancing all things and saying, the food costs way more than you know the food should cost. So, well, famine? Yeah. Plague? Yeah, that's more the other guys than Zechariah. Uh, Bad government? Yeah, a bit. Banks? Definitely. The temple? The temple shekel? What Jesus got mad at? Absolutely. right. You've made it a den of thieves. Whatever it is. Shoe store? But we cheat you yeah. That's that. Men who cheat each other and who take from each other rather than give. When he opened the fourth seal, verse 7, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature of whole earth say, come and see. So I looked and behold... Now the word here pale horse is great it captures it in the language but it, it means more than that it like means almost undead or sickly like glowing with a green white like just it's not a healthy beast this thing right that, that's the idea here it's a sick horse and behold a pale horse and the name of him we get his name who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him well John will do this in Revelation he will distinguish between death and Hades. Death would be the angel that actually takes your life away from you, takes your spirit back to God as God commands. And we can debate who he is in the big picture of angels. We don't want to care too much about those things, really. But he is like the one who kills. Hades is not so much the one who kills as the one who catches those who are slain. Hades is the underworld of Greek religion or Greek understanding. So it's kind of like what most people think about the afterlife, which is that you die, but you don't really go too far away. And if you were pretty good, it's not so bad. It's just not as quite the same, really. And if you were bad, well, you're definitely going to get yours there. Hitler's in a bad spot for sure, right? Like, And that's that's basically what we think today too, right? And so Hades is different than death. It's, it's the holding pen of unbelief, huh? So that's what's going out to the world now. Behind conquering and behind war, And behind liars with false scales, you have death and then the capture pit for the entire thing. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. I don't know if viruses count as beasts or not. But what I do know is this, when it says a fourth of the earth, that doesn't mean that at the end of time there's going to be four horsemen and a quarter of the earth dies just like that. It means at any given time, these four things are happening at every corner of the earth all over a little bit, all the way through history, that this is the normal way things go, that men are of cold heart, and that when given ample incentive, they're more than happy to cheat their neighbor, and that when they feel cheated, when they feel it's been unfair, they're more than happy to harm their neighbor. And that is because they have a heart that would prefer to conquer rather than to receive. The problem of humankind there in these four horsemen. And then right on the heels of that, you are under the altar saying, how long? Can you see why now? How long? And you get your white robe. And then verse 12. He looks, we're skipping over our text again to the next part. He looks and uh, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great man, the rich man, the commanders, the mighty man, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? That's the counterpart to your prayers. You say, how long, O Lord, until you restore the confidence of our faith and bring us back to those days when families came to church and lived and loved each other as people waiting for Jesus' return. And he says, to make that happen, to answer your prayers, I must, in fact, destroy evil things. And the picture here is the destruction of the end of the entire universe right here, right? That to get rid of the devil and all his angels and keep the torment away, he will have to wrap all this stuff up and start a new one. And he's already done it in the man, Jesus, who rose. And that's why you're already part of it. Firstborn among the next age. You, now, today. Yeah? But then all of these pictures of the way the collapse happens, the best thing I can tell you to do with that is to say, that's every day of my life. Every day the moon turns to blackness. Every day the stars fall from the sky. Every day there are great earthquakes. I never know which one's going to be which. But what I do know is as the world shows me chaos, God doesn't change. And my prayer, how long, O oh Lord, in the midst of the storm, is the Alleluia. Alleluia. Your prayer in the chaos when it is most not heartfelt. That is, you feel the pain, but not the solution as you ask him to walk you through it all. That is the how long. And so then learn this. Learn to rejoice when your enemy stumbles. I am praying fervently for the order of these here United States of America. I am praying fervently for the order of this state of Illinois. I am praying fervently for the order of Winnebago County, that people of goodwill and good work might dwell together for many years in good order. But I'm not going to tell myself that that order is more important than Christianity. And if that order tears itself down I will see that as God's judgment on it. And I'll stand right beside every one of them and say, "Grab Jesus. Get wisdom. Step into the light." But part of that, that conviction again, means knowing the world's already ended. When did the sun turn to blackness? Somebody tell me. He is risen? 3 days earlier, sun was dark all these pictures about the end of the world already happened in Jesus. That means you may embrace it as your identity forever. And if it actually were to happen, if we walked out tomorrow and the sun was black and there was blood falling from the sky, hallelujah, he has a plan. This is his plan. Those four horsemen, they come, they go. You keep praying. How long and keep knowing that the white robe of Jesus' righteousness is sufficient for today. And then walk out into that chaos, confessing boldly, knowing none of it's going to touch you. On the other side, you're going to see just a touch of verse seven, chapter seven, I mean. The four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds. They say, don't harm the earth to see the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those sealed. So remember, you got these four angels praying, and they represent all creation. And they say, look what's happening. And there's four evil things going out, doing all of this evil all over the place. But those same four angels from the start say, don't do too much until all the people who are meant to be saved, who are elected to be saved, who are chosen of Jesus Christ, until all of them hear it and believe. And so again, you can know that nothing's actually going to roll up. Nothing actually is going to end until God is ready. And that means by convincing you of your own readiness, convincing you of your own willingness. I saw another angel. They go on. Don't harm it again. Heard the number. That is, they begin to sing. That's what I want to get to. So skip down to verse 9. He sees this great multitude of the sealed. These angels going throughout all history. This word of God going to places like you, your head. To put in your head and in your heart the truth of Jesus, the reality of his word, the water of regeneration. They go to do all of this and the result is an unnumbered multitude of people dressed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they sing, they sing this. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And of course, as you know, right? These are they who come out of the great tribulation. That's you. Washing their robes in the blood of the lamb. That's you, feasting upon him today. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. That's you already. Already, you're part of this host. You don't have to die to be with them. You are before the throne of God day and night, serving him in his temple. And he who sits on that throne does dwell among you. Do you get to experience it face-to-face? Well, not like a neighbor, but what is this meal again but the face-to-face? Do you get to experience it? I, and I almost said it this way. Do you get to see Jesus in his body? Yes, you do right now before the throne of God. The only thing that's different is right now the game of endurance is on. Endurance by praise, endurance by conviction, endurance by hope. And what we're enduring toward is the game of rest. The day of utter victory. Wherein, I mean, again, you ever had this thought, like, I'm going to be bored in heaven? I know you've had this thought. Like, you're like, well, they won't have this. Or, or, or they won't have that, right? And, and I get that because it's quite true. They might not because maybe that thing's evil and you just don't know it. Right? Fair game there. But here's, here's the more important thing. You think the guy who made all this diversity up. I mean, look at a butterfly, look at a shark. You think he doesn't got more ideas? You don't think it's going to get better? You think when it explodes into resurrection, we're all going to be like, wow, God, I kind of missed stuff. I don't think so, right? Because again, you will hunger no more. You will thirst no more. The sun shall not strike you nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd you and lead you to fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Yes, indeed. Look for that day where you get to feel it. But don't for a minute think that day hasn't already come. That you stand victorious in this present age to bring others right along with you. Not by trying. Not not more of you. Not more of you. Just by being. He's your God. He's going to walk you through this. Hallelujah.